hope you will join me in Joshua chapter 6. We're going to be staying right there in that chapter and the one just prior to it throughout the next few minutes. I'm glad that you're here today to worship with all of us together. It's always an honor and a privilege to be with you all. I don't think I asked you guys to fill out attendance cards when I was up here earlier, did I? That was my blunder. Um, we would like for you to do that. Every card looked at, visitors, fill one out if you would. There's one for you, one for members. Um, and we'd like for you to do that and pass it to either end of the aisle. One more thing I was supposed to announce earlier. Marla Trouton asked me to announce this, and I forgot when I was up here a few minutes ago. Um, remember a few months back we had the Red Cross uh, blood drive here? Hoover, we're going to do that again. You guys responded really, really well to that. And they've upped our number to 37, I think, if I remember that right. It's going to be June the 2nd, and sign-ups will start next Sunday. And uh, you, can, you can sign up for that. You can sign up for a time slot and give blood. And um, it'll be, obviously, it goes to, it goes to a good cause. So if, you're, if you give regularly, we, we'd just love for you to... Uh, maybe schedule that for giving as a part of this so that we will, uh, as a church, be able to meet our quota of 37. So that's coming up June 2nd. You, you heard this story before, the, the one about Joshua, the one about Jericho, the one about the walls coming, tumbling down. This is a story that's been in many vacation Bible schools over the years, lots of Sunday school classes. Uh, these, the walls come tumbling down and People march around the city six days and then seven times on the seven days. A great story. I mean, it's a great story in that we can visualize this. I mean, it's, it's neat in the, in, the, in the sense that uh, this is a very tangible thing. I mean, I can understand this story very, very well, I think, at least, at least the basics of it. Uh, God told them, you come to this city of Jericho, and we're not going to attack it like most people attack cities. We're going to march around it, and uh, we're going to do that once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, we're going to march around it seven times, take the Ark of the Covenant, very important piece of furniture for God's people. We're going to take that around it seven times on the seventh day, and then here's what we're going to do. We're going to yell really loudly. That's it. That's the military strategy. It's fascinating. I love the story because uh, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. It makes no sense whatsoever, and and. And yet God, God gives the city into their hands and they take the city. Now, I want to do something here at the beginning uh, because I want us to make sure that we're on the same page. I, I mentioned earlier that we're all reading through the Bible together this year. Many folks in the church are reading through the Bible together. And so we come to the book of Joshua. In fact, you finish it today. And I don't want anybody here to think that you've got to be reading through the Bible with us this year to understand what we're going to talk about. It's, it's not like that. Um, however, I do want to periodically, uh, at least every week or two, to give us reminders as a church kind of where we are and, and to make sure that we're understanding what we're reading. And, and we're doing some of that on Sunday night, uh, a couple of times a month usually, but I'm going to do it sometimes on Sunday morning, especially when we're, we have a bit of a gap in, in our Sunday evenings as far as what we're doing here and teaching what we're reading. So I chose this text because it is what we've been reading the past week and because I think it's a great opportunity for us to think about what the book of Joshua stands for as a whole. This chapter, Joshua 6, really is a, a chapter that represents the whole book. I mean, if you want to know what Joshua is about, read Joshua 6. I mean, you read the whole thing, but, but Joshua 6 is, is like he focuses in on this one city and it represents a pattern that they should have followed. Didn't exactly, but they should have followed throughout and everything would have gone a lot better than it actually ended up going. You know, they had some problems later on. 
But what we've got here in Joshua 6 is the people have been coming to this day for a long time. Historically speaking, and I appreciate the words earlier and the about the, uh, the background of this. It was Daniel before, before communion talking about how we have been, uh, the, the people have been looking forward to the day when they can take the land. It's a promise God made to them a long time ago. Josh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the first things God said to Abraham was, I'm going to make of you, your descendants, I'm going to make of you a great nation, that's Israel. I'm going to give them a great land, that's this. Okay, That's back in Genesis 12. Make of you a great nation, that's Israel. Get a, give you a great land that is Canaan. That is Jericho and the surrounding areas. Okay, so this is a land that Abraham had inhabited a long time ago. But in those intervening years, stuff happened. God made the same promise to Isaac, made the same promise to Jacob. But then a period of time came when God's people were held captive as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, their cry rose up to God, and God said, The time has come. And I'm going to lead you guys to the land that I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he led them there, gave them the law, the Ten Commandments and the law. He, uh, he, he taught them about how they are to relate to him as a people. And then they got to the land. This is back in the book of Numbers. They got to the land. They got right in this general area of the land of Canaan. And they sent some spies in, some scouts in, and they all came back and said the same thing to a point. They all said, the land is great. God has been truthful with us about the land. It's beautiful. We it's, we can definitely make, uh, make a living there. But then 10 of them said, but we can't take it. And that's the bad thing. We can't take it because the cities are too strong, the walls are too high, and they have these really big, mean-looking soldiers, and we can't do anything about it. And so we can't take the land. We can't, we can't do it. As a result of that, God said that generation's not going to get to go into the land. And so they went back into the wilderness for 38 more years until that generation had grown older and died. Now, when we come to Joshua, this is the new generation. They come, and they're back at the land. And, and God has, through Moses, he's told them what they need to learn about the covenant. And now Joshua's taken over, and they come to the first city, and that is the city of Jericho. All right, so that's the background of this. That's where we are in the, in the story of God. The story of God starts in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything is good. In Revelation 21 and 22, everything's going to be good again, going to be perfect again. But in the middle of that story, bad stuff happens, and God is working this plan in order to bring us into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ so that we might be a part of the new heaven and earth at the end. So that's the big biblical story, and we're kind of zeroing in this morning on a, on a small story within the big story. I hope that helps us as we think about what's going on here in Joshua chapter 6. So first of all, I want you to look, if you've got your Bible there, I'd like you to turn back one chapter, maybe it's the same opening in my Bible, and I want you to notice a couple of things as they prepare for war. I put war in quotation marks because this doesn't meet the normal criteria of what we think of as war. And chapter 5 really doesn't meet the criteria of what we would think of as preparing for war. Now, we're not going to go back and read chapter 5. It's a pretty short chapter, but basically a couple, you know, two things happen here. Now, just keep in mind, they've already sent some scouts ahead uh, to the city. And then in, they, they cross over the Jordan River back in chapter 3. They set up these memorial stones in chapter 4. Now they're getting ready for battle, getting ready for the war. Now, look at this. I've never been in the military. Some of you have. I've read about military quite a bit. I've read about war. I know that doesn't 
mean much of anything, but I think I know enough about war from reading about it to have some idea as to how most armies prepare for war. You know? I don't think you have to be in the military to have some idea about how most militaries prepare for oncoming battle. One of the most fascinating periods of history for me is, is World War II. It's, it's just always interests me, and I love reading about the preparation for D-Day in particular. Uh, it's, it's just fascinating, the buildup of troops in England in the, in the months. Well, I mean, they started planning for that years ahead of time. And in the months leading up to D-Day in 1944, the troop buildup in England, the, the maneuvers they went on, all the preparation and the strategy and the planning, I mean, it was it was just all-encompassing for months and months and months getting ready for that invasion. Now, I know that was a big one. They're not all that big. But I think it is generally true that militaries prepare for battle by making sure they've got the right military strategy, as best they can tell, making sure that their soldiers are ready to carry out that strategy as best as they can be, and then they initiate the attack. Chapter 5, they do two things. Number one, they circumcise all the soldiers. Now, I read a lot about D-Day, read a lot about other wars, never read about this particular strategy in preparing for war. Now, I, I, I say that a little bit facetiously, but, but at the same time, I want, I want us to get, get the point here, you know? Because this is interesting, isn't it? Two things they do. They circumcise all the soldiers... And then they keep the Passover. They keep the Passover. It makes, this is the point of it, I think, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, militarily. Wasn't supposed to make any sense. Because they weren't preparing for a normal war or battle. See, I don't know. I've got questions about chapter 5. You know, why, why, why haven't they been circumcised? They already knew it was supposed to be circumcised a long time ago, you know. They hadn't done it. Probably a lot of things had not been done over the years. But for whatever reason, they, they got to this point, and they, they um, you know, Joshua, the Lord told Joshua, verse 2, to, to make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. He's talking about the first time had been the previous generation. So uh, that'd been, that had done, been done a long time ago, and now the new generation needed to be circumcised. So that's, so that's strategy number one. Let's get our soldiers ready, and let's get them circumcised. So that happened in verses 2 through 7 or so. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgad of this day. So, I mean, that's just, just leading, up, leading up to the invasion. All right? They've already sent scouts ahead. So they're preparing for this day. I mean, they're preparing for the battle. So circumcision number one. Number two, they keep the Passover. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Now, we're not going to talk about Passover really only to say this. This is what God had instituted back in Exodus to celebrate what he was about to do for them. And that is rescuing them from slavery. So Passover is going to be an annual celebration from then on, as far as the Jewish nation was concerned, to celebrate what God had done in delivering them from slavery. And so as they get ready to take Jericho, the two strategies they enact in the weeks leading up to the invasion is number one, to circumcise the soldiers, and number two, to keep a religious holiday. And, and the, thing, the, the thing that strikes me about this, and the reason I wanted to point it out to you is, I think that's fascinating from the perspective of helping us read this story as we ought to read it. 
this is not a military invasion. This is not a military strategy. This is not a war in the traditional sense of that, of that word. It's not what it is. Because this is not how you do that. And you may remember, you know, a little bit about Joshua, right? Joshua, his, his background was he, he had an interest in being a soldier, in being a, a leader, a commander. That, that was his interest. When he came down, when he and Moses coming down from, the, from Mount Sinai and they heard the noise, do you remember what Joshua's response was? It sounds like war. That's what he thought about. That's what he knew. That's what he's familiar with. Moses said, no, it's not war, Joshua. That's a party. They are, they are rebelling against God. That's back in the book of Exodus. Right? So, so Joshua knew something about, he thought about war, thought about, he, this is something he knew, knew something about. And God tells Joshua, okay, here, here's how you get ready, Joshua. Circumcise all your soldiers and have a worship service. And then you'll be ready. Then you'll be ready to take the city. Now, one more thing happens here before they actually go into the city itself in chapter 6. This is at the end of chapter 5. It's a fascinating little text here, a little paragraph. We don't know a whole lot about this, but we do know what it says here. And I think we can read between the lines a little bit about it. But you've got some, an interesting encounter here just before Joshua 6. So it says, verse 13, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Now pause there just for a second. Joshua's a military guy. And the language here, I'm told, is pretty emphatic that this thing just happened. <laughs> it's not like the, you know, he's, he's walking along and he sees this soldier, this, this, uh, this man with his drawn sword approaching him. It's Joshua who is by, uh, by Jericho. He's by the city. And all of a sudden, the language is pretty clear here, pretty emphatic, all of a sudden, like a miracle, miraculously, this man with a drawn sword is just standing there. He doesn't come there. He doesn't walk there. He doesn't ride on a horse there. He's just there. And so Joshua is he's, he's pretty impressed by this. He's scared by this, I think. Joshua went to him, as any good general would have, and he said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And this man doesn't really answer the question. He says, verse 14, no. <laughs> That's a weird answer to the question. Are you for us or for the enemy? No. In other words, that's not what this is about. This isn't about you and them. It's not about good and bad. Not, not here, not necessarily. He's not answering that question. Now he goes on. He says, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I believe, I believe because of what happens. Well, let's read it, and then I'll tell you what I believe. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, if we've been reading through the Bible, maybe even if we haven't, that ought to make us think about something, right? Take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. Where did that happen before? Right before God sent Moses down to Egypt to rescue the people from slavery, you remember the burning bush, the bush that was burning and wasn't consumed. Moses approaches the burning bush. God speaks to him out of the bush and says, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy ground. And here we have 
kind of like a bookend or the beginning of a new, new relationship, a new era. Moses is gone, but Joshua has taken over the range of leadership. And, and, and Joshua has his own, I think this is a theophany. This is a, this is a manifestation of God. This is not just an angel in the sense that it's a created being, but rather this is God. This is a manifestation of God. Some people say this is the second person of the God, and this is, this is a, a pre-incarnate Jesus. But whatever, this is God who's manifesting himself here at this particular time, in this specific, specific location, who by his very presence can make the space, the physical space, sacred. Only God does that. So the space was physical and profane or common, and then God was there, and it was no longer profane or common. It was holy. So take your sandals off. See, this is a big deal. And, and I love the, the, the interaction here between Joshua and the commander, the, the Lord. He says, you know, whose side are you on? And he says, no, but I am the commander of the, Lord, of the Lord's army. Huge thing for him to say. Very, very powerful thing. And I think Joshua knows exactly what that means. The question here is, and I think this is implied here, the question is not us and them. The question is, are you in the Lord's army? Are you on God's side? That's the important thing. Not, is God on their side or is he on, God, is, is, is he on our side? That's not, that's not the right question. The question is, are we with him? Are we with him? Are we with the, the army of the Lord? Verse 14. And so all that sets the stage, the circumcision, the worship service, the commander of the Lord's army, all this. If you just read Joshua 6, you know, I mean, it's a great story, but we might walk away from that reading with the wrong impression. And, and I think this helps us to see what's going on here is something we don't even fully fathom because God is preparing them for something other than a battle, other than a war. And then you go on into chapter 6. Now, um, we'll think about how this applies to us in a minute, but um, in Joshua 6, we're not going to read through this whole chapter. I hope that you have done that over the past few days, or if you haven't, that you will. But one of the key statements in the entire Bible, certainly in this story, is verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. I've given Jericho into your hand. Isn't that an interesting thing for God to say while the wall still stood? I have given you the city, Joshua. It is yours. Now here's what you do. March around the city. Gives them instructions. Encircle the city once. Uh, priest marching with an ark around it once a day for six days, seventh day, do it seven times. So, the, but, the, but this statement, I've, I've, given this, I've given this to you. There's a very real sense in which God often gives things, and yet he tells us, this is how you respond to the gift. This is how you respond to what I have done for you. It was never a question as to who took the city. I mean, spoiler alert, they take the city. Uh, we didn't read that part. The walls fall, right? The walls fall, and Jericho succumbs to them, and, and they take the city. That's the end of the chapter. But isn't it interesting here that, that God says to Joshua that the, the city is yours. It is yours. God simply says, 
that the city has been given to you. And this is what you're going to do in order to take it. I've given Jericho into your hand. Love that statement. I think it's powerful because God, it just reminds us, and this is one of the things we ought to wake, walk away from with a story is uh, God's in control. And uh, they didn't get to the end of this day, or the seventh day when they took the city. They, they never got to a point where they said, and I think this is part of, the, part of the reason, Joshua did not get to the end of this, nor did any of his commanders or any of the soldiers or any of the men and women of the, of the nation get to the end of the day, seventh day and say, you know what, man? We are so incredibly brilliant. That military strategy that, that we came up with, it was gold. They didn't do that, right? You think Joshua did that? When he was meeting with his, you know, doing the debrief after the battle was over, getting his, getting his military generals, his commanders together and saying, you know, let's, let's talk about what went well. Let's talk about what went poorly. Let's learn from it. Let's move on to the next city. Let's, let's adapt our strategy for the next one, you know. And do that, did they? Not a single one of them patted himself on the back and said, you know, I'm, I'm really good at this. I'm really good at this war thing. It didn't happen. And that was the point of it. This was not about them. This is about the commander of the Lord's army. So that's the battle. You know, that's the battle in Joshua 6, 8 and following. We're not even going to read it. I wish we had time to read through all this. But, you know, what happens is they encircle the city every day. Take the Ark of the Covenant around the city once a day. Seventh day, they encircle the city seven times. They march the Ark of the Covenant around it. And they, at the end of it, they blow the trumpets. They scream really loudly. The walls fall down and they take the city. The walls fall. You know, I, I want to reflect on it for just a couple minutes for us. Because I believe the Bible is written to be studied and to be applied. And, and I think this is one of those stories, one of, these, one of those uh, accounts of God doing something amazing, which we walk away from it, impressed by something more than, than, than just a what do I need to do sort of attitude, but... But what does God want to teach me through this? Certainly for the ancient people, for the people who, who read this, they were impressed by God. They were impressed by what God can do. And certainly we ought to walk away from it with that kind of attitude, shouldn't we? That it is not about us. It's not about, it's not about our military strategy. It's not about our strengths and abilities. It's not about our education. It's not about our money. It's not about, it's not about these external, superficial kind of criteria that the world sometimes creates. And I think it's important for us to see that with this. It's not that they outnumbered Jericho. It's not that they had some genius military strategy, that they did this the right way. Part, the, the thing that made it special was the fact that they did what God told them to do. God is in control. And that is why you see leading up to this, they were circumcised, they had a day of worship, Joshua met the commander of the Lord's army, they marched around the city a bunch of times, and the walls fall. And the point of that being, nobody doubted who was in control at the end of this. And maybe you need that reminder, maybe I need that reminder. The most important battle is within us. It is, are we going to submit to God or are we not? I guess that lesson could be learned from about any Bible story, couldn't it? But certainly this one. I have given the city into your hand, Joshua. Now obey me. The city is yours, Joshua. Now march around it. Uh, so many places in the Bible, 
all over the place. This is just the way God is. God gives. God gives. He is powerful and mighty and strong and a God of grace and mercy. And God calls upon us to recognize that it is He who wins the battles and it is we who submit to His leading. Most important battle is within us. I want to close by going to Colossians 2 with you. Colossians 2, I want to read that verse and maybe the verse or two just prior to it. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. The battle has already been won. I've given, I've given the city into your hand. It's already been won. It's already been won. Isn't that a great, I mean, that's, that's a great thing. It's, it, it would have been a different thing if God had said, you know what, we're going to do our best here. Pretty big wall there though, Joshua. We're going to give it our best shot, Joshua. We're going to see what we can do. God said the battle's already over with. battle's already over with. March around the city. It's already yours. Take possession of it. Take possession of it. I can't help but see a principle there for something bigger than the, than the battle of Jericho, right? Colossians 2. I tell you what, let's read, uh, let's start reading in verse 11. We'll read five verses. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us, having forgiven, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Do you notice the finality of the victory here? The, the, the outcome is not in doubt. The outcome of Jericho was never in doubt. The outcome is never in doubt. God is always going to win. And you notice in these six verses, these five verses in Colossians 2, just I love the, the kind of language that Paul uses. Having been buried, you were raised, you were dead. God has made you alive together. He has canceled the record of debt. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in Him. You notice the emphasis on what God has done and what He is doing because of what He has done. But there's very much of a focus on what He did and we are simply walking around the city. We are simply enjoying the fruit of the battle that God has already fought and won. I'm talking in a spiritual sense, of course, but I hope... I hope that we, we walk away from today with that kind of recognition because I'm sure we've got people in this audience today who are struggling in different ways. Perhaps you're struggling with discouragement or depression. Maybe your relationships are in shambles. Maybe you're facing an addiction. Perhaps you're overwhelmed with sin. Maybe you have doubt about your future. 
God has won the victory. It doesn't mean, and I don't want, I'm not so naive as to think you just snap your fingers or pray this prayer or do this checklist and all your problems go away. I know that's not the way that it works. But I believe where victory starts with us is recognizing that he's already won the victory. And it is our, it is our calling to acknowledge what he's done and to submit to him so that we might enjoy the consequences of that victory. Sometimes what we do, I'm afraid, is we, we live as if he hasn't won. We live as if the tomb still has a body in it. We live as if he's still hanging on the cross. It doesn't mean there are no problems. I still, we, we live in the in-between. We live in the already but the not yet. We, 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 we receive the benefits of his blessings, but we don't fully experience them until that day. And so we, we acknowledge that the world is not as it one day will be, nor as it once was. But we recognize that because of the empty tomb and through that act, God's disarming the principalities and powers of this world, we can live with optimism and with excitement and with confidence that the wall has already fallen. That's where the story is going. And as Christians... Even though we face difficulties, we have confidence in God who has already won the battle. And so the question being, Lord, are you on our side or their side? And God's answer is, no. God's answer is, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and you go with me. And all the victories have already been won. So that's the question for us, I think, is, are we with him? Uh, he is on your side, by the way. He's always on your side. But God has said to us, the victory has been won. Submit to him and enjoy the spoils of war, to continue the metaphor a bit. If you're not a Christian this morning, Jesus Christ calls you to himself. He, he calls you to himself. He's already won the battle. The tomb is empty. The future is certain. The hope of heaven, the hope of that new heaven and new earth is yours to embrace. Walk around the city. Walk around the possession that God has already won for you. If you're not a Christian today, we invite you through faith, trust in the commander of the Lord's army to say to him, I want to be with you. I want, I want, to, I want, to, I want to be, to use the children's expression that we sometimes say, I want to be in the Lord's army. You know, I, want to be, I, want, I want to be with you. You submit to him in the waters of baptism, which is a public confession of what is taking place in your heart as God washes all of your sins away. And you're added by God to a community of believers, to the church. The victory has already been won. If, you're not a, if you are a child of God, but you're, you've been living as if he hasn't won, maybe sometimes, we're all guilty of this, we sometimes live as if we're defeated, don't we? Why don't you come back home to him today? Claim the victory that God has already established. If you need us to pray for you, then we're more than willing to do that. If you need to take care of it between you and the Lord, please do that. But let's be, let's be with him because the victory's already been won. Let's stand and sing. If you need to respond, I hope you'll come.